Well, if you'll turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 3, this is a story that I know many of us know. We refer to it every once in a while, but uh, don't always cover it. So we're going to take a look at this as we're looking at the aspect of worship in honoring God. Just because we genuinely believe a thing to be true does not make it true. That's kind of contrary to what people teach, people believe here in this society. To be genuine and passionate in worship, it must involve worshiping our God in spirit and in truth. And we're going to see some things that were done very wrong and point us in the direction of how we can do some of these things in a, in a much more correct way. But as the, we've been here over the last couple of weeks looking at worship, catch some of our children up on this. But worship has to be genuine and it needs to involve your whole self. Now for some, they can do that singing hymns. Other people, they like to do choruses. Some people, choruses distances them. Some people, hymns distances you. But you see, you got to take what's on the inside of you. you got to make it genuine. It's got to be you. I was thinking of asking some of our kids here, that, uh, but, but I'm not going to ask you to come up front, so don't, don't, don't be too, too nervous about that. But sometimes, you know, when the music starts playing, some people, their whole body gets moving. I mean, they just start moving to the, to the beat that's just in them. And other people have no idea what's going on. We're, we're just not moved by music. The music just doesn't move us that way. But other people, you just can't seem to help it. And what happens a lot of times is we step out of the genuineness of worship in order to fall into the imitation. And the people who feel the music and move to the music feel that unless you feel the music and move to the music like they do, then you are not being genuine in worship because that's how they're genuine. And so sometimes they'll bring some people along and some people begin to do some things, whether it be in moving to the music or uh, whatever it might, whatever aspect it might be. You begin to do things not because it's genuinely in you, but because of pressure from the outside. And this is not something that we need to do or that we need to feel is genuine. A lot of times when, when I feel genuine worship God in, in one way and somebody else does not, even if it's in the same worship service, I feel like only I am worshiping God. These other people that are not going along with this are not worshiping God. And that's not true. I begin to exert pressure on other people to begin to worship God the same way I was. Well, if they do that, they're not being genuine. And as we look to the scriptures, the most important aspect of worship is that we be genuine. Now, if you are one of those people that responds to music in a certain way or doesn't respond to music in a certain way or whatever it might be, if it's in you and you bury it, you're not being genuine in worship. You may be like everyone else around you, but you're not being genuine. Some people are more movers and dancers than they let on. And they feel like in worship, I've got to sit here stoically and just be still. But then when they're out on their own, the real them comes out. What you have to get to the place to, of is that the real you is evident in worship, in private worship, or whatever it is that you are. We've used the example in another way that I think people certainly understand it better, <clears throat> that some guys can get very emotional at a sports game and feel like they can't get that emotional in a church service. Well, see, in one place or the other, you are being disingenuous. 
You're not being the real you. You are either in church suppressing who you are to become like what you think you ought to be or to just not do what you don't want to do. But God wants you to be genuine. He's made you in certain ways and He wants you to take those things that are in you and bring them out in worship. We're not here to compare our worship to anybody else's worship, to see how free I am compared to somebody else. We're here to make sure that everything that is genuine on the inside of us comes out in worship. And there are certain aspects of things that God has called for. Certainly, He has called for us to make a loud noise and to shout. Well, I'm just not comfortable making a loud noise or shouting. Well, apparently, you better get comfortable. In heaven, there are times when there is loud noises and there is shouting going on. That's that's part of an aspect of heaven. A heaven. Just because there's aspects of worship that we see going on and I'm not comfortable with them does not mean it shouldn't be a part of me. I have to allow myself to grow. And to, God, if you want me to move into these areas in worship, I'm ready to move. But if I say, uh-uh, God, I'm not going there. I'm not doing those things. Nope, nope. Well, see, I have exerted my will above the Father's. I exerted my will above the Word of God. And my worship can't ever get to the place of being blessed the way it's supposed to be because I'm not allowing the genuineness that is on the inside of me come out. And these are things that we need to, certainly need to do. We saw in the story with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we saw how that worship was forced. You will, when you hear the music, you will all respond in the same way. All of you will will bow. All of you will do this. Whenever worship is forced, it cannot be genuine. And some people probably went along with it. Well, I'm not going to be genuinely worshiping that. I'm going to be worshiping this, but I'll go ahead and I'll go along with the thing. But these three stood up. Because these three stood up, a change came. If, you don't, if you're not willing to stand up and be with genuine in worship, we won't see the changes come that we want to see. We saw also that as they began to, to do this, that first off, there were probably three stages to this. One stage where the golden statue was being built. And then after the golden statue was built is when the decree is made. All right, when you hear the worship, when you hear the, the uh, music played, then you will bow down, you will worship. But well, that may not have been called for when they were building it. But you see, that'll be changed. And then we found out that when they were brought before them, when the three Hebrew men were brought before them, and they said, you what, you're not going to worship? If I'm going to play the music again. And we found out when that was when they were brought before, then not only was the bowing down expected, but also the worship of the Babylonian gods. You see, the devil always does this. Darkness always moves the goalpost. Because we know if we declare where we want to go at the beginning, no one will accept it. So we declare something shorter. Once we get there, then we declare something further out. Once we get there, then we declare something even further out from there. Until eventually we've compromised, we've compromised, we've compromised. And there's never been a stand that has been made. That is common with with the devil. That's common with darkness. With God, God declares, this is where I want you to be. He declares the end from the beginning. Here's the end result. I don't need to hide anything. Here's what I expect of you. Here's what I'm asking of you. Here's what will happen when you do that. 
He declares it right from the beginning. He doesn't have to change it. And that's the kingdom of light. Once you recognize the kingdom of darkness, it ought to change the way that you respond to it. In 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 1, Now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. So there was not many words coming from God. God didn't send His word a whole lot. There wasn't a whole lot of revelation that came. The prophets weren't getting words. Things were kind of quiet. Why would it be that things are quiet? See, by him telling us this, by the author here telling us that the word of the Lord was rare in those days, it's telling us of a couple of things. That at other times, the word of God was not rare. This is probably not the will of God. If it was the will of God, then why doesn't he have it be this way all the time? So there has to be a cause. What is the cause for why the word of the Lord is not coming about so much? So I wrote some things in your outline for you. Why would God not be speaking to you? Have you ever had somebody in your life that you just got so mad at you weren't speaking to them anymore? Why would God not be speaking to you? Did he get mad at you? So I wrote down some things, four things here. First off, you didn't listen to what he said before. One of the most common occurrences for why God is not speaking to someone is because you didn't listen to when he spoke to you before. If if you're not going to listen to him when he speaks to you before, why is he going to say it again? Have you ever had people in your life that just don't seem to listen to you? And after a while, you just don't want to say anything to them anymore. Maybe you just say something one time. Oh, they didn't hear me. All right, I'm going on. You didn't listen to what he said before. Second, you didn't yield to what he spoke. He spoke something. All right, I heard it. I listened to it, but I didn't yield to it. I did what I wanted to instead. Here's the third one. You didn't complete what he spoke. All right, I know God told me that. I started on it, but I didn't finish it. Well, why is he going to tell you something to do something more if you didn't finish what he already told you? And most times when God tells you to do something, he needs you to finish that so that he can go on with the next step. We saw this in the life of Abraham. God gave him a task. He said, look, get up from your people, separate yourself from your family, and go down to the land that I told you. And so he got up from the land, but he didn't separate from his family. And then he's up there in Haran for a while and then his father died and he gets going again and he takes a lot with him. And then they get down in the land of Canaan and when they're down in the land of Canaan he says there's a famine here so he leaves the land of Canaan and he goes over to Egypt. And then finally he comes back over to the land of Canaan. And when he gets back over to the land of Canaan God finally talks to him again. Why didn't God talk to him before that? Because he didn't finish doing what God told him to do. He gave him just a couple of steps. And now he finally had finished it. And he's there in the land of Canaan. All right, now we can give you the next one. Imagine God sitting up there just waiting for you. Well, I told you something. Waiting for you to do it. There's the fourth one. You don't desire anything more. You know, some people, once God told them to do something, and they did it, they don't, that's it. God told me to do something, I did it. I don't want any more. You don't want any more, God's not going to speak to you anymore. 
Now, Hophni and Phinehas, of course, they were in the chapters here before. They brought evil into the land of Israel. They brought, they, they perverted the sacrifice. They brought immorality into the priesthood. God had spoken to Eli about it. Eli didn't do too much about it. So God, uh, was kind of fed up with Eli. He told him to do something. Eli didn't do it. So he's not going to be speaking to Eli because Eli's not listening. Now, I wrote three things down here. I want you to get this about God. This is important for you to understand about God because sometimes we understand God the way that we understand us. God is not. There's three things that God is not. First off, God is not moody. God does not have good days and bad days. God does not wake up and become irritable because he didn't have his coffee. He is not short-tempered because he didn't eat. He's not bothered by the events of the day and become a little short-fused. This is not the way God... God is not moody. God is the same today, yesterday, forever. He's always the same. Don't put your moodiness on God. You might be moody. You might change from morning to afternoon to evening. God does not. God is not moody. If if He's not speaking, there's a reason for it. It's not because He's in a bad mood. I'm just mad with them. Secondly, God is not moody. He is not worldly. God does not sound like the world. The world has a certain way of doing things. God does not sound that way. We have the world making all kinds of declarations today. All kinds of proclamations. That's worldly ones. That's not godly ones. You got worldly proclamations of when the earth will end. I see people are making proclamations about how the sun's going to end. Yeah, like they know. This, that God does not comply with their, their things. We know from the book how the world ends. We know what is coming. Scientists, they want you to say, well, that might be a nice book to, you know, believe, but this is what the science says. Oh yeah, five years ago your science said something different. Ten years before that it said something different than that. You go back a hundred years, your science was completely different. What's it say in 20, 30, 40 years you don't learn some more stuff? Find out that what you thought was true was obsolete. So here's, here's two things. God is not moody. God is not worldly. Here's the last one. Get this one. Or wordy. You want to talk about a person of few words, that's God. He doesn't need many. He can tell you something in four words and keep you busy for the rest of your life. He doesn't have to have a whole lot of words. It concerns me, we talked about this when we were over with the prophets, but it concerns me when so many prophets have a word every week. In fact, once a week isn't enough anymore, so I'm going to have to come on two, three times and tell you the new word that God gave them. I didn't see that in the Word of God. God came out, He spoke a word, waited for people to comply with it. When they complied with it, gave them the next word. Seems like we're just getting word after word after word after word after word after word after word. God is not wordy. If God is, if God has not spoken a rhema word to you about something, then go with what He has told you before and hang on to it and keep going after it. 
Stop coming back to him and say, well, God, is there something more? What else am I supposed to be doing? Brother Hagen, he had that word from God. Teach my people faith. Well, he didn't do that for a year and come back to God and says, well, God, I did that. Now what do you want me to do? Stay with it. Verse 2, And it came to pass at the time when Eli was laying down in his place, when his eyes had begun to grow so dim that he could not see, and before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord where the ark of God was, and while Samuel was lying down, that the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here I am. So he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. He said, I did not call. Lie down again. And he went and lay down. The Lord called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel rose and went to Eli, and he said, Here I am, for you called me. He answered, I did not call. My son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not know the Lord, nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. So he rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you did call me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord had called the boy. Therefore Eli said to him, Samuel, go lie down, and it shall be, if he calls you, that you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now it says that the word of the Lord was not yet revealed to him. He had not had a word from the Lord come to him. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. That had not come to him. He knew about the Lord, but that kind of revelation had not come yet. If you went back into chapter 2, you'd find out that Hophni and Phinehas, neither of them heard from God. And there are uh, some of the priests offering the sacrifices. Now this third time had to be even stronger than time two times before because he's already had two false alarms coming into Eli's room. Yeah, you called me. And Eli emphatically says, I did not call you. So how strong would that third word have been, Samuel? How strong would that have been in order to get him to move? That had to be pretty strong. I'm sure you're wrestling with yourself. I just went into Eli. And three times. I don't know if I can go a third time and ask him this. I mean, this is a lot. But he did. And he even comes in a little bit more emphatic. You did call me. I did hear you. You did call me. And Eli finally picks up that the Lord's speaking to him. And so he tells him what to do. Now it said here in the beginning, in verse 2, and it came to pass at that time. In other words, everything was going on just as it had been. There's nothing special about today. There was no ceremony. There was no holiday. There was no special event. It just came to pass. This was an audible voice. This is the voice that he heard. It's not a voice that he perceived. He heard it. No one else heard it, but he heard it. In um, verse, verse 10, Now the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered, Speak, for your servant hears. And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Now before we go on, take a look at that. He calls out Samuel. He responds to Eli. He calls out Samuel. He responds to Eli. He calls out Samuel. He responds to Eli. Eli tells him, all right, do this instead. So Samuel, he calls out to God. Then what does God do? 
he gives him more of a word. Why? Because he responded to the first one. See, until you respond to the word that God has sent you, there is no reason to give you anything more. So, he goes on and says, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. Eli's house has been condemned. God says, I'm going to find somebody else who will treat the priesthood better. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows. Because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Can you imagine that? Sin is so bad, God says, I don't care what offering you bring, I don't care how much you sacrifice, it's not going away. So Samuel lay down until morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. He answered, Here I am. He said, What is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. God do so to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me and all the things that he said to you. Now, don't put too much stock in what he said right here. God will not honor the words of Eli. Eli can make all the threats that he wants to. It makes no difference. He could say this, and Samuel could refrain from telling him. That don't mean nothing. But he went ahead and he told him. Now, he may have been in that conversation that God gave him that freedom, told him to do so. He just didn't want to. But whatever, Eli asked, and so he told him. Then Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him, and he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. I'm sure that's not the reaction he was expecting. As I already told you, we put this, I think I put this in your outline for you, but until we respond to what God has said, he usually says no more. And it's not just the spoken word, not just the rhema word. A lot of times we think, well, unless I respond to what he has spoken to me, no, it's also about the written word. If I won't respond to the written word that I know, why is God going to tell me anything more? How you respond to the written word of God as you come into understanding of it, as you begin to learn more about what is written in the word of God, if I don't respond to it positively, if I don't do what the word of God has told me to do there, why is God going to speak to me more? Verse 19, So Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. Hmm. Seems like Eli's words fell to the ground, but Samuel's do not. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Then the Lord appeared again to Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So this is as time goes on, Samuel is going to show himself to be the prophet that is up and coming. And the word of Samuel... And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped in Aphek. Then the, this is, these are all in the land of, of uh, Palestine. This is all in the land of Israel. What this tells you is the Philistines are the aggressor. They're coming into the land of Israel and they've set themselves up in the land of Israel so the Israelites have set themselves also up against them but this, this is all taking place in the land of Israel. And the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when the people had come to the camp of the elders of Israel said, 
Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. Now, they lost about 4,000 men in battle. We're coming up on the anniversary of 9-11. We lost about 3,000 people in that, in that day from the towers and the people that were helping out on that. And we know that our country was in great mourning because in one day we lost 3,000 people. Our country is far bigger than Israel. We have far more people in it than Israel ever did. Just as size, Israel is about the size of the state of New Jersey. And yet we have how many states and how many more millions of people than they did. Losing 4,000 people was a greater percentage of the population for Israel than it was for us on 9-11. And how much did that impact us? In fact, to this day, people still remember where they were when all that happened. If you go back to Pearl Harbor, Pearl Harbor, we lost about just as many in the in that battle that had gone on. I've always thought it was it was higher than that, but apparently it's, it was uh, right around the same same area. And that affected us. Can you imagine how much it would be when you went out to battle and you just lost 4,000 soldiers? That's 4,000 dads. 4,000 Sons, 4,000 died on the battlefield. Now, 9-11 caused us to have questions. Are there big battles? They caused people to have questions. I'm sure this caused people to have questions. And we see one of them that was right here. In verse 3, And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, The elders is the leaders. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Well, did the Lord defeat them? If you go to the written word of God, you will find out that if you do not serve God, if you do not go after him and and treat his ordinances the way that you're supposed to be treating them, if you did not come into the temple and the sacrifices and and, and the way that he had said to, certain things were going to happen. He said you would not be able to stand before your enemies is one of them. And so they're not standing before their enemies. When Joshua could not stand before the enemies at the battle of Ai. They come before God and says, get up! They're sinning the camp. If they just went back to the word of God, just to that one story, hey, they're sinning the camp. When we couldn't stand before our enemies before, they were sinning the camp. And they didn't lose 4,000 people on that day. They lost a much, much lower number. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Well, he didn't defeat you, but you see right there, the premise is wrong. Many times, people in this world will ask Christians questions. But their premise for the question is unfounded. If God is, and they'll say something, then how come this is? Well, first off, your premise is probably wrong. You don't understand God the way you're supposed to understand God. Just like when the Sadducees came and asked Jesus, you know, these seven brothers, they all... We're married to this one woman in heaven. Who she going to be married to? And he said, well, your premise is wrong. You don't understand the presence of God or the resurrection. And he corrected them on that. See, many times people in this world, they'll get the premise wrong. And they, um, and they go, they begin to ask questions off of that. Don't let people get the premise wrong. Make sure you go back and you, and you check that out. 
You see, a lot of times when you look at things with climate change, their premise is wrong. Well, what's their premise? And the, the, the premise in the, in, the, in the climate change people is that what we experience now is ideal. That's their premise. We have no idea this is ideal. We have no idea if this is the ideal Earth temperature. We have no idea if we're warmer, cooler. All we know is the Earth goes through cycles. And we don't control it. Another big premise that is wrong is they don't allow the sun to come in and have an effect on, any, on anything on the weather. How can you not have the sun affect anything? And then, of course, I take this, uh, uh, it's, it's global warming gases. If you ever want to have a fun thing, kids go home and do this sometime. Check out the global warming gases they, they attain to, you know, like carbon dioxide and stuff like that. And I want you to find out for yourself, I could tell you, but I want you to find out for yourself. When you get home, I want you to go home and I want you to make that study. When you find out, tell myself or tell Miss Allie what's going on. Tell me how much carbon dioxide is in our air. I want you to go out and if you listen to most of the people, you're going to be thinking, you know, 30, 40 percent, something like that. I want you to go home and I want you to check it out. Find out how much carbon dioxide is actually in our air that they're saying that we are altering. You see, the premise very often is wrong. You have to get down and find out what the premise of the thing is. This is what Jesus would do with people that would come and ask him questions. What is the foundation? What is the basis of that question? Here's the basis of this question. The Lord defeated us. The Lord did not defeat you. That's the first thing that's got to be challenged. You didn't involve the Lord in the battle. If you would have involved the Lord in the battle, if you would have taken care of the sin that was in the land, would have changed things, but you didn't do it. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. So, we got a wrong premise, a wrong foundation for the question. The Lord defeated us. And we've come up with this question. Now we come up with an answer. Since God won't give us an answer, let's go and get our own. So what they, they have decided is we are going to take the Ark of the Covenant and we're going to bring it in the battle. Where in the Bible is it ever said that the Ark of the Covenant belonged in the battle? Never said that. The Ark of the Covenant belongs in the tabernacle. It's very clear what part of the tabernacle is supposed to be. This is where it's supposed to set. This is where all activity goes on around the tabernacle. Ark in the Holy of Holies, that's how it's supposed to be set up. We decided to change that. Things aren't going the way we want them, so we're going to change things up. We're going to make, make it go a little bit better. So we're going to go and bring the Ark of the Covenant. Basically, what they're doing is this. If God won't go into us with battle, we're going to force him. And we're going to take his Ark, and we're going to bring it into battle. Now he has to come. And see, if God is with us in the battle, we will be victorious. So this is what they decided to do. See, many people that are absent the knowledge of God, they don't know, they don't have a foundation in the things of, of God. And so they just pretend to know, they pretend to speak, and they just make up stuff as they go along. I've, I'm convinced, you know, it's been this way for decades. 
but if we sure see it a whole lot now, people just make up stuff and they go along. It's it's amazing, you know. In you know my view about masks, but but if you take a look at some of the people that push for the masks to be going on, just uh, one or two years ago, they said they were useless. They said themselves they were useless. If you look on the package of any of those masks in the store, I'm sure you don't buy have any at home. But if you you know go in the store and you look on the side, it will tell you that they will not do what the people are telling you to wear it. Say it will. It says right on the package. It won't do it. It will not prevent disease. It says it right on the package. And the neat that the manufacturers are saying it won't do this, but the people are telling you to put it on. And then, of course, they decided to come up with, well, now wear two and three masks. It's bad enough that you couldn't breathe with one. Now you can not breathe with two or three of them. But see, we're just throwing stuff out. There's no rhyme or reason to it. There's no no wisdom behind it. Let's just bring the ark in with us. Let's go into battle and let's just bring the ark in. I think I, I put this in your outline for you. Most people who can't seem to hear from God bring objects of worship or objects of prayer in place of the Word of God. They'll bring objects in. People will go into prayer and instead of going into prayer with the, with the Word of God, some of them will go into prayer with beads. Some of them will go into, into prayer with charms or statues of different, different um, saints. They'll go in with things. Instead of going into worship with a pure heart, with genuine sincerity, they bring objects of worship in and bring those things along. See, I can see them. I can bring that along because I can see it. See, if we bring the ark in, this is something I can see. We may yell at them, why are they so stupid? Why did they bring this stuff in? People today will bring physical things in. It's the same thing that they were doing. God never said to bring that in. God never said this is going to help you, but I will bring it in. You just try and take some of those beads or some of those saints away from the people who was in their, in their time of prayer and just see what happens. Some people, you know, they have certain shawls that they'll wear. And I'm not saying you can't have anything like that. It just gets you the mood for prayer. But don't think that shawl or that thing that you're wearing is going to have any movement on God. It's not. It's just like them, uh, them sports people. People out there and they, they play sports. Uh, I, I knew this more from hockey. I know uh, some of the superstitions that, that hockey players would have. That hockey players, for a game, m- most of them have lucky socks. This is the socks that they wear. It doesn't matter if they're old. This is their lucky socks. And they got to make sure I need my socks to go into that, that game with. Because sometimes, several years ago, they scored a goal when they wore those socks. So they therefore became their lucky socks. Or whatever it might be. These kind of things are going on. Now, I resisted that sort of, that sort of stuff. Uh, when even when I was in the cross-country team, there were certain, certain guys that had certain things they would wear. Because this was their... This is their game time stuff. So I made sure I said, all right, I wore that last time. I'm not wearing it this time. <laughs> Just because I wasn't going to have that attitude or let, let that begin to, to come on. Now, in the absence of, or rejection of what is godly, 
what is worldly is gladly accepted. In the church, in the absence or rejection of what is godly, what is worldly is gladly accepted. This is why you have a lot of church doing a lot of worldly things. Because we rejected what God said, so therefore I'm going to need to bring in something else. And so we brought in something worldly. We brought in something beside that, because we rejected what was godly. If you reject what is godly, you will gladly accept what is worldly and not think much about it. That's why you got to make sure that what you bring into worship is godly. It's in the Word of God. It's something that He asked for. Because without God, your ideas are all bad. I am not capable of good ideas on my own. I need God. Just because you get an idea or you think a thought doesn't mean that God is behind it. You need to check it out. Well, you know, I was thinking. That's dangerous. I was thinking if we do this in worship, this might really usher in the presence of God. Now here we're going to see that these folks love the idea of the ark coming in because for many people, animation is some to, is sometimes more real than a confirmation. I'd rather see something than know in my spirit God confirmed it. Verse 4, So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas were there with the ark of the covenant of God. Isn't it surprising that those two couldn't figure it out that God wasn't behind it? And when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Hmm. Surely God's got to be behind this. I mean, look how excited they all are getting. Look how sincere they are about going after this. I mean, they are shouting. This must be some kind of a worship service going on here. Oh, just just shouting, just excited. They're not excited about the Philistines. They're excited because God is coming into the camp. And their excitement is genuine. It's, it's not just half-hearted. They, they are putting their all into it. Mm. I think I put this in your outline for you, but our flesh nature seeks things that stimulate over the things that stabilize. That's your flesh. Your flesh likes things that stimulate over things that stabilize. Remember in Jesus' day, show us a sign. Show us a sign. Show us something. Stimulate us. And Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. No, we need the, the word to be confirmed on the inside. What Jesus wanted them to, to know is, as he spoke these words that were from the Father, that down in their spirit it would resonate and would confirm, these are the words of life. These are the words of life. I don't need to see signs to know that these are the words of life. And they would get excited because of that. But your flesh... It looks for things that will stimulate over things that stabilize. Verse 6, Now, when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid. They said, God has come into the camp. 
And they said, Woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also, the ark of God was captured, and the two sons, Eli, of, of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, died. So they were upset that 4,000 died. 30,000 soldiers died. I suppose if that number is exactly accurate, then you could probably say that 30,002 died. Because Hophni and Phinehas are not numbered among the foot soldiers. So there may have actually been other people around there that, that may have died as well. But the 30,000 foot soldiers of those who went out to battle died in one day. That is a lot. The ark that they brought in was captured. If you had questions, why did God allow 4,000 to, to die in the battle before? What are you asking now? 30,000 died. The Ark of the Covenant was captured. The high priests are dead. Or the high priests, they're dead. Oof. Then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line that same day, came to Shiloh, where his clothes, with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Now when he came there, was Eli sitting on the seat by the wayside watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. He kind of knows this thing shouldn't have left, this thing shouldn't have gone out to battle, but he didn't stand up against it. And so the whole time it's gone, he's nervous. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. And Eli heard the noise of the outcry and he said, what does the sound of this tumult mean? The man came quickly and told Eli, Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle. And I fled today from the battle line. And he said, what happened, my son? So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. There has been a great slaughter among the people. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. Then it happened when he made mention of the ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backwards by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy and he had judged Israel 40 years. Now there was an expectation for much greater things and doesn't it seem like their eyes were on God? Doesn't it seem they're excited that God is in the camp? Doesn't it seem to be there's an excitement level there. There's a sincerity. There's a genuineness about them. And yet, what they were doing was wrong. You can be genuine, but you can be wrong. It will not help you to be genuine if you are wrong. It will not help you to be passionate, as we saw last week. You can be passionate, but if you're passionately wrong, it's not going to help you. you got to make sure that you go after the right things and go after it in the right way. Isaiah 29 and verse 13. 
Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. That's the New King James Version. I want to read this for you out of the New Living Translation. And so the Lord says, These people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. Yeah, these people are going around. They're saying that they're mine. They're saying that they're Christians. They're saying that they're worshiping God. But everything that they do, it only comes from their mouth. It's not coming from in here. It's not genuine. The, the NET reads this way. The sovereign master says, These people say they are loyal to me. They say wonderful things about me, but they are not really loyal to me. Their worship consists of nothing but man-made ritual. See, God's not into ritual. He's not into just doing things. Well, this is the way we always did it. This is how we, we do it. No, He wants something on the inside of you to come up. And that genuine worship to come from the very inside and to come out. Sure, you can get your lips to say the right thing. You can get your hands in the right place. You can close your eyes. You can look like you're doing the right stuff. But God says, that's not coming from the inside of you yet. I need it to come from the inside. I can get people who just with their mouth, with their lips, they utter praise. But I need it to be genuine down the inside. As much noise as these people made as the ark came into the camp and they're getting ready to go into battle. And they actually took the ark into battle. Can you imagine that? The ark that is not supposed to be accessed by anyone but the high priest. They took into battle and exposed it to the enemy. The Philistines. You, God didn't even want another priest to be in there with it. Only the high priest and that only once a year. And here we have the Philistines, worshippers of idols, having close contact because these people can't get God the way they want to. And they're not hearing from God, so we need to go get ourselves a magic charm and bring that on in. And God was so unimpressed that he allowed his Ark of the Covenant to come into the hands of the enemy. Well, God, why don't you show up and keep your ark safe? With, with what was inside that ark, if anybody did touch it, that happened to the same, same thing that we saw not too many weeks ago when David tried to bring it up in an inappropriate way. And they died. So the Philistines probably learned, well, we, we've got to be careful with this. People die. Now, in the world today, it is common to reject the Word of God, the voice of God, and the Spirit of God. This is common. This is what they do. If you want to stand up for the rights of animals, you can do it. If you want to stand up for the right to life that the Word of God talks about, you'll be ostracized. If you want to talk about the right to gather 
and burn things and loot things. That's okay. But if you want to talk about the right to gather and worship God, this is suspect. Don't wonder who's at the, the control of the people who put these things up. This is the kingdom of darkness all through it. They will reject the word of God. They will reject the voice of God. And they will reject the spirit of God. Pressure will be applied to you to do the same. Or you're going to risk safety, community, or unity. If you don't accept the things that they're telling you to do, they're going to let you know, well, you're going to be risking this, the safety of society. You're going to be risking the community of society. You're going to be risking the unity that we're trying to, to get. It's all hogwash. It's only unity as long as you agree with us. As soon as you don't agree with us, we don't care about unity. You must accept the science. You must keep worship to yourself. Don't be exclusive. Don't be limiting in your beliefs. The other person is just sincere as you are about their beliefs. You can't be going around saying that what you believe is the only thing that's true. Now I wrote down four things here. You can fill in the rest of the what I didn't give you if you want to. These are common things of darkness. This are the, these are the things that darkness will come about and do. When you see this, don't wonder, is this, is this God? Is this good? Is this beneficial? When you see these things, this is the kingdom of darkness. It doesn't, you, it doesn't matter that the people behind it may not see themselves as giving over to it. But the kingdom of darkness is the kingdom of darkness. It's how it is. When it shows up, this is what it does. First thing, achieve compliance and increase pressure until it is yielded. The kingdom of darkness is to achieve compliance and increase pressure until it is yielded. We went over this some weeks ago. The more force exerted in order to get the compliance, the more exposure comes to their motives. This is why the kingdom of darkness is always trying to do as little force as possible. It's why they have the stages of it. Well, let's just try and, uh, for your safety, get you to go along. And if that's not working, well, then you need to do it for the safety of other people. And if that's not working, well, then you need to do it and they'll come up with, they keep coming up with more reasons why you need to do it. They're keep, keeping the pressure on. But each time they step up the pressure, we, I forgot how many weeks ago it was, but it wasn't too long ago we went over this. Each time they step up the pressure, it exposes their motives. That's why they try not to do too much force. They try and get people to go before that. And if you can get people to go with less pressure, then they can exert the pressure on other people. And all through history, we've seen that exerted. Peer pressure to conform to what's going on. Here's the second one. Declare an end goal short of objectives, short of the objectives, and keep changing until the real one is achieved. They're going to declare an end goal. But that end goal will always be short of their full objectives. And then they will keep changing the objectives until they reach the goal they always had. Because they realize the kingdom of darkness knows if I tell you 
at the beginning, wherever we want to go, you will not comply. Because it's too much darkness. What we have to do is we have to get you to gradually accept the darkness. A little bit less light, a little bit more darkness. A little bit less light, a little bit more darkness. Until you don't recognize that the change is so drastic. We looked at that, of course, with the fiery furnace. We saw how the objectives change. And there's other places in the Word of God where you'll see this as well. Here's the third one. Repeat what is false until people believe it is truth. Repeat what is false until people believe it as truth. You can go back into the Israel in the wilderness. Look at the things that were declared there. God brought us out here to die. That's false, right? How many times did they keep saying it? They kept saying it, they kept saying it, kept saying it. Pretty soon people believed it. God brought us out here to die. Hey, but these are the gods that brought you up from the land of Egypt. They kept repeating that. In fact, it got to be so ingrained in them that when Jeroboam branched off from the southern tribes, what did he set up as their gods? The two golden calves. Don't think that thing died there at the mountain. You keep repeating a lie often enough, people will begin to accept the lie as truth. How about this one in the wilderness? God is not able to, when you fill in the blank, they learn that God is not able. Here's the last one. Challenge the character with those who challenge the lie, but don't debate the truth on the line. That is a kingdom of darkness tactic. All those things we've we've gone over in recent times. Just reiterating them here. We saw that with Jesus. Do they debate the truth with Jesus? No. He cast out demons by the spirit of Beelzebub. See, we can't debate his truth, therefore we have to come against his character. Stephen, they couldn't debate his truth, so they came against his character and they hired people to come in and to testify. We saw him, we heard him say, Paul, they brought people in to, to come against his character because his truth, they couldn't, they couldn't top it. You see, the truth that is God's, people cannot argue, people cannot stand against, they know it. So they don't want to debate these things. They just want to throw you out. If you want to come against anything, even you know, like the global warming stuff, if you want to come against it, they don't debate the truth of what you want to say. Oh, you're just one of those deniers. Oh, you're one of those flat earthers, aren't you? Well, you're just a hater. And they begin to, to say things to a character. God does not attack character. He pinpoints false beliefs. When he came against the Pharisees, when Jesus comes against the Pharisees, he always pinpoints what they said, what they did, how it was inconsistent. You hypocrites, you say this, but you do this. You don't even believe it yourself. This is what he was. He kept trying to do. That's the kingdom of light. The kingdom of light is always going to take the truth and shine a spotlight on it. The kingdom of darkness can't take the spotlight, so they gotta try and put something up to make you distrust the light, the spotlight that that one is putting on it. And all these people that are out there in our government, they're trying to run the spotlight on certain things that are going on. 
They always want to turn it around and say, well, these people. The kingdom of darkness is very present around us. It has been. It will continue to be. Do not allow it to affect your worship. Your worship needs to be genuine. You worship God in spirit and in truth. Regardless of what people say out there, you come before God and you worship Him with everything that is on the inside of you that is genuine. You don't come in worshiping God based on fear that they've given us. Oh God, we think the earth is coming to an end. Oh God, come soon. We just, we don't need to do that. God, if you come tomorrow, if you come 10 years from now, if you come 100 years from now, it don't matter. Because I'm still going to serve you. See, we just go on and we worship God. Don't let that be affected. But what God wants you to do is regardless of all the people that are around you, all the people that are trying to put pressure on you to change this, believe this, go this way, or do these things, you be who God has called you to be. God has not called us to be afraid of sick people. He said that if you lay hands on the sick, they shall recover. Except for a couple. No, that's what he said to do. How many of you have been watching the, the TV show, The Chosen? Anybody not seen The Chosen yet? All right. If you haven't seen it, I do recommend it. The, the funny thing about it is, I actually like what they do apart from the Word more than what they do with the Word. Yeah. <laughs> They're getting me a little upset. that We got past the, the wedding to Cana, and I almost got, I got mad. The one before that, I didn't get mad. I didn't like it. But, uh, alright, I'll, I'll go with that. But when they did the wedding to Cana, I was mad. I loved everything about the episode except when they had Jesus test the wine. My Jesus doesn't test the wine. Wasn't even near it. But I'll tell you what, they have developed a great plot about each of the disciples and who they probably were. And I think they're very consistent. And I love some of the off stories that they've gotten. Very consistent with the, probably the, the people that are there. I think they have a great rendition of Jesus and some of the things that they have done with, with him and some of his interactions with people. I love the interactions with the kids. Um, but you just, you get this, there's a genuineness about them. And even Jesus, as he's calling the disciples, he wants them to be genuine about who they are. He doesn't give them a whole list of these expectations you need to do. I think it's, it's wonderful. If you want some good TV, that can be, that can be good uh, TV there. But I believe they're on filming season three right now. So you can uh, catch up to the first, first two if you want to. But even in those, those days, you still had darkness that was trying to come on. You still had people they were being pressured to go in a certain way. The Pharisees tried to pressure people to not go in a certain way, not believe certain things, not do things. Don't bring sick people on the Sabbath. There's always pressure. We're not living in a strange time where all of a sudden we're facing pressure. But we are seeing an awful lot of Christians who you thought wouldn't have given into it, giving in. No, stand up to pressure. Don't hate on them. Don't be nasty to them. Just don't give in to pressure. But be genuine. When we get here and worship on Sunday mornings, let that genuine who you are come out 
in worship. Practice pushing everything else aside. No fear, no concerns, no lists, no what's happening tomorrow at work. Because the enemy will constantly try and bring these things in. Because he knows he can take away from that genuineness that will so help you in worship. If he can get you to focus on even some of these wrong things. If he can get you to focus on the Ark of the Covenant is here in our presence. Surely we win this battle. Not if God didn't ask you to do it. Not if it wasn't genuine. Be 100% who you are. And then as you do that, allow God to show you some things about you that you may not even know. Do you know, you may not be your genuine self even right now in worship. God looks at you and says, boy, they're taking everything in them, being as genuine as they can. But God says, but they don't know what's in them yet. Just keep going. You're going to find out there's some more in you. There's something greater yet. You haven't found it yet. You haven't tapped into it yet. But it's there. And if you keep pressing in, if you keep pushing in, you'll find it. Oh, I saw this aspect come out of me in worship. And it was very truly you. It wasn't anything you were trying to put on airs. But genuineness in worship will transform your life. Not compliance to become like everyone else that's around you, but who you are. And as long as you are plagued with all the thoughts and all the cares and all the worries of life, and you bring them into your worship time, you will not be as genuine as you think you are. Would you all stand up with me? Father, I thank you for the power that being genuine in worship brings for us. Just as Jesus on the cross gave 100% of his genuine self to do what God had called him to be. Other people tried to get him to comply, to change, to alter, to not do, not be what he was brought here to do and to be. But he resisted. He stayed true to his calling, only speaking the words of the Father and only doing what he saw the Father do. And the most genuine person who ever walked on the face of this earth was looked at as something not genuine by those around. Because the world could not see that genuineness. But our Father in, in heaven can. And I thank you for that. Here this morning, We celebrate communion elements. Jesus learned what it was to live a life and be genuine. Even though there were people in his group that were not going to be genuine with him, It did not alter him. It did not change him. He stayed genuine. 
regardless of who has been faithful, who has been genuine, who has been true in your life. It doesn't change how we ought to be ourselves. Always be genuine, always be true. Though the world be found to be liars, you be true. You stand for the truth. Don't let anything alter you. Don't let anything take that away. Just know that every time that you come into worship, the enemy is going to try and pull you from being genuine. He's going to do it every week. If you worship every day, he's going to do it every day. Because he knows this will change your life. Not the kind of worship we see here in 1 Samuel 4, where they were praising and shouting and hollering to God with everything they had. But you see, it wasn't founded on the truth. It wasn't founded on what God asked them to do. If you are genuine about what is not true, it won't change you. But if you are genuine about what God said to do, it will alter your life. And the next time, you'll learn more. And then you'll learn more. And then you'll learn more. And pretty soon you're going to be able to get into a place of worship where whatever people are doing on your right, on your left, it doesn't affect you because it's coming up on the inside of you. If everyone around you is quiet, lifting up holy hands, praising God, and it's in you to dance, you won't hear that little voice that says, well, I can't dance, no one else is. Because down on the inside of you, it's coming up to do that. Jesus is our example of someone who is genuine. You cannot say I have a genuine love for people like Jesus did and get to a place where you prove it and find out that it wasn't quite so genuine that his love was oh that's how much he loved you before the supper Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said this represents my body which is broken for you as often as you do this do this in remembrance of me His body was given up for you. That your sickness and disease that the enemy who tries to put upon you have already been put on Jesus. Let's walk free of those as we get together. After supper, he took the cup. So this represents my blood which is poured out for you. His blood cleanses us from all sin. Pay the price. There's nothing else that needs to be had. The enemy will try and change you from being genuinely forgiven. Try and bring in some other things. You need to do this. You need some penance going on. You need some a little bit of remorse going on here. 
You did some good deeds to fix that up. Stay genuine. Lord, this is what you said. This is how we walk. Let's remember the blood of Jesus as we drink together. Glory to God. We have a song to end on? As we worship here on Sundays when we come together, as we worship here now, and even as you worship during the week, take those times of practice, times to be genuine, times where you push everything else out, and just focus on the greatness of your God.
I thank you that you are glorified in our life. You are glorified in the words that we speak. When we speak words founded on your word, founded in faith in your word. Grow us this week. Grow us in our worship. Grow us in our faith. Grow us in our stand against the world. And grow us as we shine the light of the gospel of Jesus. We give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for joining us this morning. Bless some people before you go.